I'm Victor Blackwell, and this is CNN Tonight. It is unprecedented to hear a president of the United States call his predecessor a threat to this country. But that's exactly what we heard tonight from President Joe Biden about Donald Trump and Trumpism in his renewed Battle for the Soul of America campaign, this time ahead of the midterms. What is happening in America today, he says, is not normal. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. They promote authoritarian leaders and they fan the flames of political violence that are a threat to our personal rights, to the pursuit of justice, to the rule of law, to the very soul of this country. They look at the mob that stormed the United States Capitol on January 6th, brutally attacking law enforcement, not as insurrectionists, who placed a dagger at the throat of our democracy, but they look at them as patriots, and they see their MAGA failure to stop a peaceful transfer of power after the 2020 election as preparation for the 2022 and 2024 elections. On the same day Biden delivered this fiery primetime speech, Trump heaped more praise on those involved in the violent attempt to subvert the 2020 presidential election on January 6th. The contrast between the two could not be more stark. Trump says that he's actually giving money to some of the Capitol riot defendants and would pardon them if he could. I met with and I'm financially supporting people that uh, are incredible. And they were in my office actually two days ago. It's very much on my mind. It's a disgrace what they've done to them. I will look very, very favorably about, about full pardons. If I decide Amen. to run and if I win, I will be looking mm. very, very strongly about pardons. Joining me now, former Democratic Congresswoman Abby Finkenauer and CNN political commentators Alex Burns and S.C. Cup. Everybody, welcome to the table. Abby, Abby, let me start with you. This was a, a fiery speech, as I said. The White House said this speech was not about Donald Trump, but he called him out by name, and it was the first applause line of the speech. Look, that speech was Joe Biden. That, that speech was exactly why President Biden ran for president in the first place. I still remember talking to him before he announced, and it was because he was worried about our democracy. He was worried about where our country was headed. And now that he is president, and we've seen how Trump has continued to divide folks, he has continued to have the backs of insurrectionists who went after our democracy, after my friends in the Capitol that day. And he is doubling down, making sure that the country knows that President Biden is there defending it, will do whatever he can to keep fighting for them, keep fighting for this country, democracy, and again, who he is. He spent his whole life in service and for this country, and that, again, tonight is what we saw. Who's the audience for this, Alex? Look, I think that we've seen a, a clear shift in the mood of the country over the last a couple months in response to the uh, the Dobbs decision striking down the right to uh, abortion access and, and certainly the aftermath of the raid uh, on Mar-a-Lago, the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. There's clearly a window here for Joe Biden to get out in front of the country again and remind them about the things that uh, they liked about him back in 2020. But, Victor, I do think it's important to stress here all those forces that I just described, moving the political environment more in the direction of Democrats, almost none of that has to do with Joe Biden 
personally driving a message and shifting public opinion. And I think what you saw tonight is, at least from the White House, some kind of sense that you know he should be out there in front of the American public leading uh, the charge and carrying the flag in a different way than he has up to this point. I think this was for everyone who might be thinking about staying home. I think Joe Biden was saying, if you're mad at me, if you feel disappointed, um, you feel let down by me or Democrats, things aren't going as well as you thought or we promised, these are the stakes. And so it's not about me. It's not about the party. It's about America. And this is why folks like me, you know, center-right folks, voted for him because it was time to make America good again. And those are the things he talked about. It was important for him to say these things, to call lies lies, to call out violence, to talk about things like the Constitution and law and order. He had to say these things. Uh, But this wasn't a conversion speech. He wasn't trying to get, you know, Republicans to to leave the flock. This was to remind moderates, independents, and anyone else who might not come out in November, this is why you must. Well, and there was hope in it again, right? And that's something that um, I would you know, like to say, I think is new for Democrats in the last month is a bunch of hope that we are feeling. And President Biden tonight reminded the country of that. I mean, yes, it was dark at times, right, where we're talking about the dangers of Trump. I thought it was pretty Trump. dark. Yeah, but at the same time, there were those moments of the American dream, right, uh-huh. where he reminded the country of what does actually make America great and what we can do from here, right? There was hope. And that was the thing that I think truly Democrats had been missing up until the last month. And I thought it was great of him tonight to remind folks of it again. But, th- but that to me is sort of the, the, one of the big challenges for uh, Biden, particularly mm-hmm. in, the, in the final two months of this midterm campaign, uh, is selling the electorate on a positive vision yeah. of the future, right? That Biden is very, very uh, in his element, talking about the threat that Trump represents and talking about the American political tradition, the mainstream American tradition that he's talked about in virtually the exact same language uh, going back to the very beginning of his 2020 campaign, talking about you've never fully lived up to the dreams of the founders, but every generation has opened the door uh, of opportunity wider. Uh, What we've not heard a whole lot of from him since he became president is that section of the speech where he's talking about lowering prescription drug prices and rebuilding the country. I think that is a crucial, crucial element of the Democratic midterm message. And I would bet that for the next 60-some days, we're going to hear actually quite a bit more of that than the sort of straight, uh, full-on, double-barreled anti-Trump stuff. House Leader, uh, Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, he delivered this pre-buttle from West Pittston, uh, Pennsylvania. Let's listen to a bit of that. When the president speaks tonight at Independence Hall, the first lines out of his mouth should be to apologize for slandering tens of millions of Americans as fascists. What Joe Biden doesn't understand is that the soul of America is in the tens of millions of hardworking people, of loving families, of law-abiding citizens whom he vilified for simply wanting a stronger, safer, and more prosperous country. Obviously, he did not do that. Uh, But he did at the top try to, I don't know if this was clearing up what people have been trying to make the semi-fascist comment into, saying that all Republicans are semi-fascist. He said, it's not all Republicans. Um, It's not even the majority of the party. But people who want to believe that that's what he was saying will still do that. And those who don't still won't. 
Look, uh, he is not wrong in his diagnosis of the problem. I I wish he'd leave the punditry to us, Um, you know, frankly. Um, But listen, Hillary took some heat for deplorables. He'll take some heat for calling, you know, members of a political party semi-fascists. But he isn't wrong. And I don't think he should um, back down from diagnosing problems and calling threats what they are. Um, but it's good that he clarified he wasn't talking about an entire party. Mm-hmm. I have to do that, too, when I say, listen, the Republican Party or Trump followers, it's not everyone. But um, listen, this party is led by Donald Trump still, and it's definitely led by Trumpism. And so it's it's parsing um, to really try and contort your way into identifying, the you know, The whole party is this um, right now. Mm -hmm. There's a new poll out that shows even beyond the economy and jobs and crime and guns and abortion, the democracy is the most important issue facing the United States. Of course, we heard that was the focus of the president's speech. But do you believe we're going to hear this on the campaign trail, that this will make it to the top line topic for uh, these candidates? If we don't, we should. I mean, at the end of the day, when you're out there and you're talking to folks who are just trying to live their lives and, you know, put food on the table, get their kids to baseball, soccer practice, they've got a lot on their mind, but they're also worried about the future of this country. There are folks who saw, you know, maybe they fought for our country or they saw their parents fight for it. And they're looking at, you know, looking around going, my God, where are we headed from here when you've got, you know, the Capitol being stormed on January 6, 2021? I mean, they're still terrified about that. And so I think this is right to talk about this, to talk about what's on the line. And I think it is on Democrats, but not just Democrats, people who, you know, again, the media, everybody to be talking about what is on the line and what is at stake in this election, but also in 2024, because it's a scary time. Yeah, the president certainly framed the next, what, 67, 68 days uh, until the midterm election. Uh, Abby, thank you very much. Alex, S.E., stick with us. Uh, The January 6th committee is now requesting testimony from a former House speaker. The question is, will Newt Gingrich cooperate? And why does the panel want to hear from him? A key member of the committee is with us next. The January 6th committee is seeking the testimony of another major witness, former House Speaker Newt Gingrich. According to a letter asking for his voluntary cooperation, the panel wants to learn more about Gingrich's advice to Trump advisors about spreading election lies through TV ads. The committee says it already has evidence of Gingrich doing this. They cite an excerpt from an email that he sent to Jared Kushner and others. Uh, The date of it is December 8th, 2020. Quote, the goal is to arouse the country's anger through new verifiable information the American people have never seen before. If we inform the American people in a way they find convincing and it arouses their anger, they will then bring pressure on legislators and governors. Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren from the January 6th committee is with me now. Congresswoman, it's good to have you. What more can you tell us about um, the former speaker's involvement uh, with the Trump team? Well, I think it's laid out in the chairman's letter. You've referenced his role in trying to get the um, election overturned uh, just before the Electoral College met. We also have information uh, about his efforts to get uh, the election overturned even after the riot on the 6th. So we would like to uh, talk to him and to hear from him about uh, these matters. And I'm hopeful that he will come in. I I serve with Newt Gingrich and uh, I 
would hope that he would come forward and sit down with us. How close to fruition did this plan for these uh, TV ads to arouse anger come? Well, um, you know, I don't want to get into all the evidence we've compiled, but there was a wide-ranging plot involving uh, many individuals to overturn the election after the election was held. And this was part of that effort. We know that there was an online effort to arouse anger. Um, We've been able to uh, map out some of the online efforts that that promoted violence. Uh, And uh, some of it was mainstream on TV. Some of it was web-based. And we're getting a clearer picture of really a comprehensive plan Uh, to arouse anger and to use violence to overturn the election. Uh, Any uh, early indication that uh, the former speaker will, as the the letter asks, voluntarily cooperate? The letter was just sent out today, Hmm. so we're hoping to hear from him soon. You know, my first day in Congress uh, was the day that Newt Gingrich was first sworn in as Speaker of the House. So we go back a ways, and I, if he's watching... Uh, Let me just say, I hope you come in and we can have a discussion about these important matters for our country. Okay. I I, I don't know if he's watching. Um, I'd be surprised. But if Newt Gingrich is watching, you just heard there from uh, Congresswoman Lofgren. Let me move on to some other uh, potential witnesses. We've got new reporting tonight about Jenny Thomas, of course, the wife uh, of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Uh, She now... Uh, not only pushed Arizona lawmakers to try to overturn the 2020 election results, but also uh, sent some letters, uh, emails rather, to Wisconsin lawmakers. What is the effort now to get her to speak? The last time we engaged on Jenny Thompson specifically, the committee was considering subpoenaing her. Are you moving beyond just consideration? Well, let me just say that, uh, you know, when we have a subpoena, we announce it. And we don't usually discuss our deliberations prior to that. But, you know, a lot of people had opinions. Uh, that doesn't make them a witness. Uh, but uh, we would like to discuss with Ms. Thomas um, her collaboration with John Eastman and uh, have a fuller understanding of the role that she played. She had said when we mentioned our interest in talking to her, that she would look forward to coming in, that she would definitely come in and looked forward to it. And I hope that's still the case. Can you explain that uh, distinction you just mentioned, um, that a lot of people have opinions, it doesn't make them a witness? What's the relevance of that uh, directly to Jenny Thomas? Well, I mean, there are people who uh, clicked onto websites, who forwarded emails to their friends and neighbors. That doesn't make them... um, a witness to an effort to overturn the election necessarily. But we would like to talk to Ms. Thomas about um, the uh, connection she might have had with Professor Eastman. And, um, you know, she's, she said in her public statement that she uh, would clarify everything, that it was all fine. And so I wish she would step forward and do that for us. Hmm. This doesn't have to be adversarial. She should come in and do exactly what she said she could do, which is clear the air. When you say there are people who went online and forwarded emails, are you suggesting that's what she did, that she just sent something no, on? No, okay. no, I'm not. And okay. I, I've, I've probably gotten too far uh, down, and I don't want to confuse people. But, uh, you know, we're looking for people who have 
uh, evidence about the plot to overturn the election. All right. Let's talk also about um, Tony Ornato, uh, former yeah. now Secret Service official, uh, was uh, a former deputy chief of staff for uh, the former president. Um, we know the committee interviewed him twice earlier this year. Um, what's the effort to get him back in? I know that you have said that uh, what you've seen from uh, the Secret Service does not um, correlate with what you're hearing from the Secret Service. Um, what do you want to know from uh, Tony Ornato, and, and how close are you to getting some of those answers? Well, we do want to talk to him again, um, and uh, there are a lot of things that just don't add up to me on what the Secret Service has said and the material that we're getting, uh, some of the testimonies inconsistent. So uh, uh, his abrupt uh, departure from the Secret Service uh, is of interest. And uh, we're hoping to be able to explore this in the near future. So I don't mean to to suggest that he's unwilling to come in. There's no indication that's the case. Um, But we're looking forward to further discussion with him. What's your reaction to what we heard from uh, the former president today, that he is meeting with uh, some of those who were at the Capitol on uh, January 6th, offering, as he calls it, financial support? Uh, If he runs and wins re-election, he is going to, uh, he's considering pardoning them with an apology. What do you think about uh, what you heard from uh, former President Trump? You know, every time I think I can't be shocked, (laughs) I'm shocked. Uh, You know, today there was one of the uh, defendants who brutally attacked a Capitol Police officer, was sentenced to 20 years in prison for multiple violent felonies, and that the former president would be talking about pardoning people who engaged in that behavior really is shocking, and that he would be uh, funding people who tried to, um, you know, essentially murder the vice president, overturn the election, and and go back, and we I think we have them on the committee website, take a look at the first hearing and the level of violence that was aimed at the Capitol Police who served us so bravely and who took such a beating, almost like a medieval war. And to say that that is patriotic, to say that those people should should get an apology, I'm sorry, that is disgusting. Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren, always good to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you. There are new developments in the classified documents investigation. Donald Trump's lawyers and DOJ prosecutors came face to face in court today for the first time since the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago. We'll tell you what went down when CNN Tonight returns. We could soon learn a lot more about what was seized from Donald Trump's home. A federal judge says she's now considering releasing a more detailed inventory of what the FBI took from Mar-a-Lago last month. Uh, We've only seen an abbreviated receipt from the search warrant. Neither side objected when Judge Eileen Cannon gave them the opportunity. This was the first time since the search that Trump's lawyers and DOJ prosecutors made arguments in court. And we're now waiting for the judge to decide if she will grant the Trump team's request for a special master. She says she's considering temporarily blocking government prosecutors from accessing materials seized. 
And if she does, appoint that third party to review them. Now, at one point, Trump's lawyers tried to downplay the seriousness of what was found at Mar-a-Lago, highly classified national secrets that one attorney has compared to a hunt for an overdue library book. That's the stuff of an overdue library book and some people that are perhaps holding this president to a different standard than anyone else. CNN political commentators S.E. Cup and Alex Burns are back also with me now. CNN legal analyst and former federal prosecutor Jennifer Rogers. Jennifer, an overdue library <laughs> book. I just hand that off to you. Yeah, I got to say, I'm offended. I yeah. mean, that's ridiculous. We have top secret documents, SCI documents, special programs documents, and Jim Trustee, who I know and liked at DOJ. But he wants to talk about library books. I mean, that's outrageous. I mean, it really... Not only does it downplay the seriousness of what we're talking about here, but I think people will see that as the ploy that it is. I mean, they want to downplay in various ways. They want to talk about, oh, this is a case about the Presidential Records Act, this and that. But you just look at that picture that's on the screen and you can tell this is not about library books. You don't have to see what's in these documents to know that if the government bothers to classify them at that level, it's more than a library book. Does this make it worse trying to downplay it to this level? Uh, well, I was going to make a Seinfeld joke about is Go Tropic ahead. of Cancer or Tropic of Capricorn. Um, but uh, listen, this is so dumb. All of it is so dumb. This is not um, an overdue library book. Another of his lawyers compared espionage to like just mundane charge. That's not mundane. Um, nobody thinks this is how they found your office, Donald Trump. Like anyone who's seen any Forensic Files episode Ever and he's knows. offended by that. Yeah, but it's ins- but it's insane. No yeah. one thinks that's how they found it. Everyone knows they lay out the ob- you know the evidence and they take pictures. And he is obsessed with this, which is like being shown a picture of a body and a gun and saying that's not how I keep my guns. That's not how I keep my bodies. Let's listen. It's to, crazy. Let's listen to the former president on this point. Let's play it. A lot of people think that when you walk into my office, I have confidential documents or whatever it may be, all declassified. But I had confidential documents spread out all over my floor and uh, like a slob, like I'm sitting there reading these documents all day long or somebody else would be. It's so it's so dishonest when you look at it. The FBI wasn't trying to pull a fast one. He keeps his uh, (laughs) classified documents alphabetized, by the way. (laughs) They are in a neat stack. He and his lawyers continue to uh, litigate this, and uh, uh, to use a somewhat uh, inappropriate verb, but continue to litigate this uh, as though it's really a public relations battle, right? And if you can just sort of uh, say enough times, uh, as confidently as you can, that this is all a sort of unserious, uh, you know, sort of you missed a stoplight uh, kind of charge, that then this goes away. And I think, I mean, I'm not the lawyer uh, at the table, but uh, I do think that's reflected in sort of the caliber and, and seriousness of, of the arguments that they uh, have been making in, in some of these uh, court filings. And when you hear the president, the former president, uh, out there saying that kind of stuff today, no, my office, uh, I'm not some slob, I'm not even reading these uh, documents all day, it just makes you wonder, like, does he fully grasp the gravity of what's going on here. And I do think, you know, when you talk to Republicans, certainly in Washington, folks who are uh, working in races around the country, there is just this, uh, there's no other word for it, but just this horrendous acid flashback to uh, when he actually was the president. And whatever it was that you were trying to talk about that day, he could decide that, you know, today's the day that he's going to feud with the Queen of England or whatever, (laughs) right? Today's the day that he's going to go out and defend uh, the organizational capacity of his personal office. And that's just obviously missing the point in a pretty grand way. Acid flashback? 
Yeah. That's what it was? He yeah. said that. Okay. Yeah, okay. I heard it too. All right. You know, I, I wonder, though, <laughs> the, the attorney, Chris Kice, who just came on, the former uh, Florida Solicitor General, says that if you uh, grant this request for the uh, special master, that'll bring the temperature down across the country. People will then have confidence in this uh, investigation. Do you expect that will convince Trump or Trump's people? I'm sorry, the temperature that they raise, that they are the ones who have been throwing fuel on the fire. I mean, you know, come on, this is ridiculous. The temperature is raised because they have raised the temperature. And the special master, I mean, no one's really paying attention to those details. You know, they went in, they executed the search warrant, people went bananas. You know, DOJ responds as they do, very calmly, very, you know, concisely, in writing only, in court only. And, you know, it doesn't take the temperature down. This special master thing, she appoints one, she doesn't appoint one. The person reviews what's already been reviewed or not. No one's going to care about that. I mean, this is just rhetoric. The temperature is up because they want it up because that's the way that they've decided to deal with this. They didn't have to go this way at all. You know, they did this really under the radar. It's, It's Trump and his team that have gone out pushing all this forward, really forcing the DOJ to respond with all of these factual corrections and so on. This is really all on them, including the increase in temperature. Well, and the I, think, temperature. I, think, I just think that's such an important point. The decision to raise the temperature and really uh, the, the road not taken here, which, mm. you know, again, I'm not the lawyer here, but, but I am a political reporter. And certainly politically, a road not taken would be to just keep it really quiet. You're not really going to talk about this. Yeah, we're working out some stuff with the Justice Department, and you know, that's happening through this channel over here. But foreign president's focused on his MAGA agenda or whatever, right? But the decision to say, no, actually, we're going to uh, file tons of stuff uh, in court challenging you to produce more uh, materials, which, of course, then the Justice Department does. And we're going to be on television making these uh, uh, sort of way out there arguments every day. It's a decision to put this front and center in the public <laughs> eye. And even if Donald Trump finds that personally gratifying, it's obviously uh, not helpful to his uh, party, Mm. not that he seems to care, uh, and doesn't seem particularly helpful to his case. Mm. It's also just a straw man that the temperature is raised. Like, look at all the polling shows that most Americans think what the FBI did was justified and right. Mm. Most Americans are not worried that they're going to come to their house and ask for the secret documents that they took from the White House. Like, that's not a thing. It's um, a narrative that is being created in Trump world to threaten people um, out of doing their jobs or, or scare them out of pursuing this. But most Americans, for most Americans, the temperature is not raised. They think this was the right thing to do. Yeah, and again, all of we are learning about this, uh, this search is because of Trump first announcing the search and then asking for the special master. All of these details are his team's doing. All right, everybody, thank you very much. Uh, we're, of course, waiting for the decision from that judge. Ahead, the people of Jackson, Mississippi, are still struggling without clean water Despite claims of progress, we've seen these kinds of systemic failures before in America. What would Stacey Abrams do to prevent this crisis uh, in her southern state? She's running for governor of Georgia, and she is here next. City leaders in Jackson, Mississippi, said they've made significant gains, their words, in restoring water service. Yet for roughly 150,000 Americans in the state's capital, the largest city, this is what life is like there. Waiting in line for something you cannot just walk to your tap right now and get clean water. We've seen everyone from church groups to inmates pitching in to distribute bottled water. But frustration is pointed directly at the people in charge. Doing with our tax dollars, you got to pay a water bill, but you can't use the water. That don't make no sense. 
I got a hundred dollar water bill I just paid and I can't use the water. Listen, it's easy to see the situation in Jackson is happening somewhere else. It's not here, but just like it was in Flint, Michigan. Uh, there are cities across America on the brink of having the same problem. Anyone running for office needs to have an answer for how they will help their community. And that includes my next guest. She's a Democratic nominee for governor in Georgia, Stacey Abrams. It's good to have you tonight. Thank you. Thank let's, you for having me. Certainly. Let's talk about Georgia. In 2017, a report found the state was the fifth, fifth worst for untested or contaminated water. And just last year, there were 941 EPA violations uh, by Georgia water systems. That's up from 652 the year before with 93 health-based violations. What's the plan to make uh, sure that no city or town in Georgia uh, becomes another Jackson or Flint? First and foremost, we have to realize that we are one Georgia and that there should not be a discrepancy based on racial inequity or economic capacity. The provision of water, the provision of clean water is a fundamental obligation of the state. And as deputy city attorney for the city of Atlanta, I worked with the mayor of Atlanta to ensure that we were able to deliver clean water. But across the state, local governments are being precluded from taking the actions they need because they're not getting the support they deserve from the state of Georgia. I would take the revenue that's been generated by the infrastructure bill, by the Inflation Reduction Act that will flow into the state of Georgia, as well as diverting some portion of the $5 billion surplus that Georgia has on hand to make certain that we are working with local governments to address and resolve water sewer issues. These are fundamental and operational situations that can be addressed. Georgia has an antiquated and outdated system. And in fact, the city of McIntyre is celebrating because they were finally able to get $6 million through federal action by Senators Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff to replace an antiquated sewer, I mean, sorry, septic tank system. Throughout Georgia, we have both a water and sewer issue and a septic issue, and it's going to require immediate attention by the next governor of Georgia. The current governor has refused to take action, and I will do so. President Biden today in uh, Philadelphia, he talked about uh, infrastructure, of course, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act that became law. Uh, and the money now that's going to be dispersed throughout the country and where that money's going to go. Let's watch. I believe we can build a better America. So we passed the biggest infrastructure investment since President Dwight D. Eisenhower. And we've now embarked on a decade of rebuilding the nation's roads, bridges, highways, ports, water systems, high-speed Internet, railroads. Of course, the, the, the concern always is making sure that money gets to the communities that need it most, often the underserved communities, unfortunately, usually black and brown communities. Absolutely. And we know under the current governor, first and foremost, he opposed the legislation. While he has happily spent the money now that it's arrived, he has done nothing to guarantee transparency, to ensure that communities are being equitably treated. And he was on the brink of actually opposing legislation just a few years ago that would have helped three cities in the um, metro Atlanta area actually access clean water. He finally relented and signed the legislation, but did so with a fairly pithy response that said that he didn't think it was the responsibility of taxpayers to actually solve the problem by giving those local communities the ability to tax themselves. We know that was one of the challenges faced in Jackson, that the state legislature denied them their ability to actually solve or at least address their problems. Taxes may not always be the answer, 
But the government, especially the governor of the state of Georgia, the governor of the state of Mississippi, has an affirmative obligation to work with local governments, city and county, to find solutions. Because the people have paid their taxes and they deserve to have services that work every day. I will say that uh, in February, Governor Kemp awarded more than $422 million to more than 100 uh, water and sewer projects. But as you point out, there is still more work to be done. Uh, there, uh, Not just water, roads, bridges, as we uh, heard from uh, the president. There is also the health care of the people uh, of Georgia and making sure they have resources to clinics, to hospitals uh, as well. What's the plan? Well, let's begin with what's going to have to happen in Georgia because of the failure of Brian Kemp. Yes, he allocated a bit of money, money he had nothing to do with securing and money he begrudgingly accepted and no money that he's willing to support by actually making certain it goes far enough to solve the problems. And his failure to solve problems is why Georgia will lose yet another hospital under his watch. It will be the sixth hospital to shut down under the watch of Brian Kemp. And it is the Atlanta Medical Center. It's been around for nearly 100 years. It is one of the two level one trauma centers, and it's going to shut its doors on November 1st. This is exclusively and entirely the fault of Republican leadership over the last decade that has refused to expand Medicaid and draw down what would this year be $3.5 billion. This money will only increase over the coming years, and it's money that could have saved lives and saved this hospital. They have refused to do what's right. Brian Kemp has refused to bring our money home. And instead of paying for health care here in Georgia, Georgia taxpayers are being forced to pay for health care otherwise and elsewhere without being able to take care of themselves. As governor, I will make expansion of Medicaid my number one priority to save lives, to save hospitals, to save jobs, and to make certain that across the state of Georgia, everyone has access to the ability to thrive. Democratic nominee for governor of Georgia, Stacey Abrams. Thank you. Thank you. All right, now to a new police incident making headlines across this country. An unarmed black man fatally shot in bed. The body cam video has been released. It provides a a lot more context as to what happened, but so many questions remain as a young man's family demands accountability. You're going to hear from a lawyer for the officer who pulled that trigger. Next. Donovan Lewis was shot and killed in his bed at 2 in the morning. He was 20 years old, a black man. The person who shot him, 30-year veteran of the Columbus, Police, uh, Columbus Ohio Police Department, uh, Lewis was not armed. Now, this shooting happened early Tuesday morning. Officers were looking to serve Lewis with a warrant for domestic violence and assault and improper handling of a firearm. They searched the apartment for several minutes. They repeatedly called out for Donovan and used a dog during the search. The next video is hard to watch, but you will see on the body cam footage how quickly Officer Ricky Anderson goes from opening the bedroom door to pulling the trigger. We're going to send that dog in. The only thing that was in Donovan Lewis's hands was a vape pen, according to police. Caitlin Stevens is one of the attorneys representing the officer, Ricky Anderson. Uh, Thank you so much for being with me uh, tonight. What is the threat uh, of a man in a bed in that amount of time? 
Well, so what the law says, Mr. Blackwell, is that in order to assess what is going on with respect to the threat is that it has to be reasonable. And when you look at a reasonable police officer uh, with respect to analyzing the threat, um, you have certain risk factors to look at. A, whether or not um, the suspect poses an immediate threat, um, whether or not the suspect has attempted to evade arrest, uh, whether the suspect is being compliant or non-compliant. And so what the reasonable police officer standard says is that police officers are in fact allowed to be mistaken so long as that mistake is reasonable. The reasonable mistaken officer is in fact justified in his or her decision to use deadly force. And so actual possession of a weapon is irrelevant. And that's what the case law tells us, is that actual possession of whether or not the person had a weapon is not relevant for the consideration of whether or not a police officer reasonably perceived a weapon. And so with respect to the actual um, weapon, um, it's it's what it is, is an issue of mistake. And, and that's what this case boils down to, is if it was in fact reasonable, um, that officer Anderson reasonably perceived a weapon. Like I said, actual possession is irrelevant and the law does not require police officers to wait until the harm is in fact inflicted upon officers before allowing the officer to perceive a threat. But in, in less than a second, that door opens and he fires that shot. Listen, I've seen more of the video than we're showing because of our network policy. We're not going to show the man being shot on television. But in less than a second, when that door opens, he fires the shot, even before anyone says, hands, 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 he's got something in, in his hand. So in that time, how does he even have enough time to perceive what it is there? And so what the reasonable police officer standard accounts for is that officers are often forced to make split second decisions with respect to whether or not a person perceives a threat. And so I can't speak about the specifics of this allegation or this investigation because it is an ongoing investigation. But what I can talk about is the law that surrounds police officers being forced to make split second decisions every day. And, I hear and, that. The and, and let me read the, the law just so we have just the same starting point. I'll read the law here where it says uh, that for a force to be used, there must be a, a reason to believe the response is objectively reasonable to protect themselves or others from the imminent threat of death or serious physical harm. So, so that's the uh, so that's the um, the uh, law there. Um, let me ask you, why does this keep happening in Columbus? You represent several Columbus cases. Andrew Hill, a city just agreed to a $10 million settlement. Um, Andrew Mitchell, who just got a second uh, trial date for a 2018 case. This is the third officer involved shooting in eight days. What is it about the Columbus Police Department? Um, and so, I, I mean, I can speculate all day as to uh, as to why this is happening. However, um, I, I I think it's a combination of things. I think certainly that there is an epidemic of gun violence that is plaguing our city and our state. Um, but I also think it's also attributable to um, the fact that police officers are now able to account for the fact that Ohio is now an open carry concealed um, state. And so every time a police officer leaves his or her house, they are faced with the fact that a, a person may or may not be armed and they don't have to have any training for that or anything or they don't have to have so a permit. So is it your suggestion that because it's an open carry state that police officers now perceive more items that are not guns to be guns? Because I want to remind people, no. Donovan Lewis didn't have a gun. 
not at all. What I'm saying is that when police officers leave their homes every day, that that is always in the back of their mind. And that's what has to be taken into account with respect to the reasonable police officer. It's not asking a question of what an officer could have done or should have done, but rather it is what a reasonable police officer could have believed about the situational need to use deadly force in Ricky Anderson's shoes, standing in Ricky Anderson as he stood on Tuesday morning with the knowledge of what he had at that time as existing as it was. All right, Caitlin Stevens, listen, I know this is early in the case and there's some things you can't discuss. I appreciate the conversation. Uh, I'd like to continue it uh, as we learn more about this case. Thank you so much for being with me tonight. That's it for us tonight. Don Lemon Tonight starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.